Please take your Bibles and join us in, again, the book of Philippians today, chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. It could easily be uh, said that the fourth chapter of Philippians is the most familiar of the four chapters that comprise the book of Philippians for reasons that will become obvious if you're unfamiliar. Philippians 4.13 is perhaps one of the most quoted verses uh, that folks like to quote. Uh, I would say roughly 80% of the time that verse is quoted, it is misquoted or at least misapplied. And uh, we'll speak to that when we get there. But also, chapter 4, verse 19 Uh, Another very familiar verse. These are probably the two most famous verses in Philippians. So this chapter qualifies as a prominent chapter. But uh, neither of those verses, 13 or 19, comprise the central argument that the apostle is making in the fourth chapter. In other words, the verses are true, but the point of those verses is not primarily the point that he's making in the entire chapter. And you shall see that as we read. So let's read beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, I've often said, as you seek to understand the Scripture, you should follow the verbs. Follow the verbs. The problem with reading an entire chapter is that there's an awful lot of verbs, and it's really hard to dis- determine which verbs should I follow. It's kind of like you flush a cubby of quail, quail hunting, and you decide, you have to decide which bird to shoot at. If you shoot at all of them, you'll hit none of them. You've got to pick a bird out and go for it. So I've identified three verbs that I think are helpful to understand, I think, the tall trees or tall mountains, if you will, in this chapter. There are many, many, many other things that I would love to talk about. But I just want to point out three. I want you to note, first of all, in verse 1, he tells his readers, stand firm in the Lord. In verse 4, he tells his readers, rejoice in the Lord always. And then in verse 14 and following, specifically down in verse 18, sacrifice for others in the Lord. So those three verbs will be our focus this morning. First of all, note in verse 1, he begins by saying, stand firm. He addresses his readers with great affection. He calls them his brothers. He says, I long for you and I love you. You are my joy and my crown. Uh, Of all of the wonderful accolades or, if you will, salutations that people have addressed me with, no one's ever referred to me that way. Hey, Greg, you are my joy and crown. No one's ever addressed me that way. I feel a little cheated. I suspect you've never been addressed that way either. And you may think, well, this is just, you know, hyperbole. This is just the apostle pouring it on. In fact... I want to suggest quite the contrary. Again and again in this letter, we have seen him show immeasurable affection, a deep, deep tenderness for the folks at Philippi. That's one of the things that, that sorrow does, if you will, that suffering does. It brings people together. It binds their hearts together. It's kind of that foxhole thing. If you share a foxhole with someone, indeed, you'll never forget that experience and that you shared it with him or her or them. Indeed, that's what's happening here. The apostle has experienced enormous suffering in his ministry, and the Philippians have stood with him again and again and again and again and again. He references that here in this very chapter. You alone stood with me. You are my joy and crown. But in in spite of all his dear affections for this church, he does not fail to say to them, yet again, stand firm. 
Now, if there's a church in the apostles' ministry that maybe didn't need that, that had proven itself faithful in doing that without yet another, if you will, prod from the apostle, it would be the Philippian church. This is the church that has helped him more than any other church. And yet, in, in spite of that, he does say one more time, stand firm thus in the Lord. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Invariably, uh, I have occasion to talk to people who are tired. They're tired. They're tired of their burdens. They're tired of their fight. They're tired of their struggle. They're tired of their circumstance. And invariably, my response is nothing more complex than don't quit. The worst thing you can do is quit. Just keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep believing. Keep, keep hoping. Keep, keep looking to God. Keep praying. Stand firm. Decide this is who I am, this is what I am, and this is where I will stand. And no matter what else happens, I will stand here. Think of the people who you respect or admire, particularly those in the Scripture. Those who have shown great courage. They, they stake their ground and they stay there. They don't move. They don't deviate. They're not flighty. They're not moistening their finger and looking to find the appropriate wind direction and going with it. Instead, they're saying, this is who I am. This is what I am. This is who I'm for. This is who I'm not for. And they are standing their ground. They are standing firm. But specifically, you'll note, verse 1, he is not suggesting that people just be somehow irritable, somehow be uh, stubborn, stiff-necked, just be people who say, well, I'm a man of principle. Well, that's good as long as your principle is right, as long as the thing that you're standing on is right, as long as the ground that you have determined is your ground is the right ground. If you're standing firm in the wrong, that's no virtue. That's no asset to your life or anybody else's. You'll note the apostles very clear. Stand firm, verse 1, in the Lord. He's already said this in chapter 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. Stand in the Lord. In chapter 2, he again commands these dear people whom he loves, have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. And then he goes on to say, having the mind of Christ, work out your salvation. Give attention to these things. Stand firm and be found faithful in working out your salvation in Christ. In chapter 3, he's already told us, again, precious verses. He forgets what lies behind and he presses on. He presses on for Christ. Again, in chapter 3, verse 20, he reminds us that our citizenship is not of this world. Our, our territory, if you will, our ground, our, our, our commitments don't need to be based upon worldliness, 
or material things or temporal things, but rather on eternal things. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven. He has reminded us of this again and again that we await the coming of Christ. Stand firm in Christ, in the Lord. Don't fail to take that seriously. The apostle writes to a church that uh, is countercultural in every way. As we've already mentioned, the Philippian church is the first church the apostle starts in on the continent of Europe. So from the beginning, they they were the first. They were the, if you will, the loners. They were Christians when there were no Christians. It's not like they had been raised Christians, that their mama had trained them as Christians, or that their friends all go to Christian congregations somehow. They're not faithful to God because it's popular. They're not faithful to God because it's common. They're not faithful to God because it's typical or because it's usual or it's a part of the culture. They're faithful to God because he is God. And they are standing firm in God against all odds, against enormous odds. And they are doing so in a culture that is far more pagan even than the one that we live in, by far. I reflect on this often in my own life, how easy it is for us, even though we have had significant advantages over against the Philippian church, Many of us can say that we were raised in church, that we were raised by righteous parents, or we had righteous influences in our lives, perhaps family, certainly friends, that we've heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Perhaps for some here, you can never remember a time when you weren't listening to the Bible, to the gospel, hearing the truths of of Scripture for your life. We've had all of these advantages, and yet we find ourselves easily adrift. Instead of standing, we're drifting. Instead of standing, we find ourselves malleable. We're, we're being formed. We're like a, if you will, a spiritual Gumby being formed into some new shape. We, 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 we ought not to be proud of such circumstances. We ought to be men and women of, of stiff backbone as pertains to the things of Christ. Stand firm in the Lord. Now, lest you think that that means that you should be old and crotchety, you need to hear the second paragraph in Philippians 4, to which he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Rejoice. In other words, he's not suggesting that if you're standing firm, this makes you mean. If you're standing firm, this makes you unkind. If you're standing firm, this makes you rude. If you're standing firm, this makes you irritable. If you're standing firm, this makes you argumentative. Now, folks, this is what typically is associated with strong conviction or, if you will, great courage. There's an arrogance about it. There's a brashness about it. There's a, well, it's my way or the highway about it. The typical, 
if you will, picture of standing firm, being a man of strong conviction. Well, he, he, he may be wrong, but he's never in doubt. Well, whoop-de-doo. You haven't reflected God or Christ in that. Again, look at verse 4. On the heels of telling them to stand firm, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. He repeats the imperative, the command. I tell you, rejoice. I tell you again, rejoice. Rejoice. Again, we perhaps don't need to belabor this, but this is not a circumstantial happiness. Uh, the world is fascinated with happiness. Uh, the world finds uh, no end of ways to pursue happiness and markets those ways again and again and again and again. The suggestion is that if you have one of these, you'll be happier. If you have two of those, you'll be happier. And if you have what everybody else has, maybe even better, you will be as happy as they appear to be. Well, the truth is, to start with, you have no idea whether they're truly happy. Have you ever noticed that everybody's wearing a mask? They are. That's a pretty good picture for the state of our culture. We're all masked up. Turns out we've been masked up for years. We just weren't wearing the paper or the fabric. Because we, we, we tell people we're fine. And the reality is we're lonely, we're angry, we're bitter. We're mad at God, we're mad at our family, we're mad at our neighbors, we're, we're mad at our church, we're mad at our government, we're mad at everybody. We're just mad. And the reason we're mad is because the things that were supposed to bring us joy don't. We're tired of being lied to. Give me a new car, I'll be happy. The problem with a new car is that it doesn't stay new. <laughs> Just doesn't. We, we worship in a, in a beautiful facility. We've been here 13 and a half years. I'm thankful for this facility. But it's not new anymore. There, there are problems. And I find myself at times wishing, I wish we could do something different there. What? It's still new. Well, no, it's not. And that's the human heart, isn't it? You know, I wish we'd just do something different. We get to have a different vacation. We could have a different experience. If we could just do something we've never done before. The human heart is constantly producing these drives, these desires, these, these requests, if you will, for new fulfillment, new something that will titillate or tantalize our heart constantly. And yet, the Philippians, the Philippians, in spite of the sorrows of their existence and in spite of the Apostle Paul's sorrows, he's a man in prison after all, in prison for doing nothing wrong, in prison for doing everything right, seemingly, preaches the gospel, loves people, serves people, challenges people to look to God, and in spite of doing everything right, God has him in prison. 
Now, you know, in the contemporary culture that we live in, the contemporary Christianity that most people possess, is if, if I do the right thing and God doesn't give me a right reward or a right blessing or a right protection, then God has lied to me. God has executed what amounts to being a spiritual shell game. You offered me this and then took it away. I want to suggest to you that the apostle will have none of that. On the contrary, he simply says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Our problem is not that we don't have a God. Our problem is that we don't look to our God. We don't walk in our God, our relationship with God. Here again, what the apostle says in chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, that's bad, right? I've, loved, I've suffered the loss of all things. That's what happens, by the way, when you're in prison. You, you suffer the loss of all things. They take everything away from you. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. So that, why do I want to be found in Christ? So that, why do I want to count all things as rubbish? So that I may, verse 10, know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. So many Christians want to push back against God and say, God has somehow lied to me. I have followed him, and all I have reaped is suffering. It's just been hard. It's been harder than I ever imagined. It's, it's just more hard than it ought to be. And God has, in effect, lied to me. People feel tricked at best and lied to at worst. Rejoice in the Lord nonetheless. Becoming like him, he concludes, in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's an old adage, goes something like this, everybody believes in heaven, but nobody is ready to go. We think somehow that because the saints of God die that God has let them down because the saints of God perish and God has failed them. In fact, the apostle argues against that in this very book, Philippians chapter 1. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I desire to go to be with the Lord because that will be better for me. Our loved ones in the Lord, when they die, they are not hurt. They are not cheated. Our loved ones who die in the Lord, they die and their lives gain. But we miss them, clearly, rightly so. There is a grief that is righteous, and we acknowledge that. We, we certainly embrace that. We, we certainly want to care for and comfort those in the span of grief. But let us do so by pointing them 
to the preferred benefit that their loved ones are enjoying. They are not waiting on the Lord. They are in the company of the Lord. They're waiting on you. Rejoice in the Lord because the Lord <coughs> and our relationship with Him is what determines our joy. I would just simply give you a bit of a challenge here. If you find yourself anything but joyful, regularly fighting for joy, regularly fighting the absence of joy in your life, or regularly acknowledging that there is little joy in your life, I would caution you to examine whether or not you are indeed following this exhortation, this command. It may be that you're way too earthbound. And then you might say, well, why am I happy? If you, are, if you find yourself joyful, happy, if, if you find yourself at peace, you might ask yourself, why is that the case? And invariably, we will certainly point to earthly things, relationships, or perhaps some sort of health, uh, or, or perhaps some relationship and health combination, right? I mean, we're, we're healthy and the people that we love are healthy. These are, these are not bad things, wrong things. We'll find ourselves looking at these things, and yet those things can be removed from us more quickly than we would ever hope. Our circumstances are real. Our circumstances matter, but our circumstances are shaky, every one of them. We must hold on to these things loosely all of these things, as good and right and beneficial as they are for our lives, these things are not our lives. My life is not defined by any of those things. And the more that I define my life that way, the more I find myself disappointed and not joyful. He goes on in verse 5 to give a series of adjectives uh, he just lines them up. Uh, first, first, more imperatives and then a series of adjectives. Let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, surpassing all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Why do you have peace? Why do you have joy? Why do you have all of these things? Because of the presence of the Lord, because of your dependence upon the Lord. Let me say that differently. Why do you not have these things? Why, do you, why is your heart not at rest? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you downcast? It's because you're not doing these things. It is unreasonable to find your joy in things that are built on shifting sand. It is unreasonable to find your joy in things that can be taken away in a moment. Don't be anxious, but instead call out to God, cry to God, hope in God, trust in God, believe in God. Is your mind fixed on Jesus? Well, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Jesus. Keep your heart fixed on Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is the exhortation of Philippians again and again and again and again. I'm often mindful of Luke chapter 10, 
verse 17, this uh, particular instance, I think, speaks well to our typical way of finding joy. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now stop there a moment. Even the demons, Jesus sends out these 72 and they are given authority, they're given power, they're given, if you will, jurisdiction. And even the demons do the bidding of these 72 are sent out. And they come back and they are, they are rightly joyful. Hey, man, how'd it go for you? Oh, it went great, it was wonderful, it was fantastic. These experiences, this experience, this experience. Let me tell you about this. Did you hear about whole so-and-so? Yeah, and all, you can imagine a bit of a family reunion and everybody's come back off the road and they're all coming together and they sit down in the company of the Lord and they said, Lord, you sent us out. And it was fearful or perhaps it was difficult or perhaps it was, uh, there was a great deal of apprehension about going out. What are we going to experience? What are we going to have? What are, how are we going to meet people? So forth, all those kinds of things. But here we are, Lord, we're back, and we want you to know it was great. It was fabulous. We're so, so joyful, even demons. That's a pretty good situation. But Jesus is having none of that. Notice he said, verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Stop there. That's good, right? I mean, you're walking around and nothing. I mean, you're, you're basically immortal, seemingly, right? I mean, nothing's going to hurt you. Even the demons do your bidding. This is, this is good. This is great. Just think about that in your own life, the circumstances. God blesses you here and blesses you here, and he gives you this and he gives you that, and the, and the world is your oyster, seemingly. And you say, glory to God, wonderful, wonderful. These are all great things. I'm so happy, so full of joy. Notice what the Lord says. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that when you die, you go to heaven. Do you know how many people I know that live right there? Not many. That's a very hard thing. It's a very challenging thing. And I want to suggest that the people I do know who live there are the people like the Apostle Paul in Philippians who find themselves in the midst of great suffering. It's very difficult when you're on the mountain to imagine that somehow heaven is better and that heaven is what, really, what life is really all about. When you've got plenty of money, and your health is good, and your relationships are good, and your toys are good, and your experiences are good, and you're going and doing, and going and doing, and going and doing, and going and doing. It's real hard to say, I can't wait to die and go to be with Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
Rejoice and let your reasonableness be known. Let your reasonableness be known. God isn't interested in you being angry. God's not interested in you being down in the mouth. God's interested in you being full of joy, hoping in him, trusting in him. Your mind is fixed on Jesus. You find joy in people. You find joy in people doing the right things. You find people following Christ and you're thrilled with this news and you rejoice in these things that are eternal because you know that the temporary things are just that, temporary. You're not oblivious to these things, but you trust in the Lord. You look to the Lord. You hope in the Lord and you build your life upon the Lord. There is a phrase at the end of verse 5 that always challenges me. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. We know the Lord is not seated on our shoulder whispering in our ear. That is not a good analogy whatsoever. I reject that. The Lord instead lives within us by means of his spirit. He lives within us. And the Lord speaks to our heart, speaks to our conscience, speaks to our identity, speaks to our being, speaks to our joy. It is the Lord that gives us this reasonableness. It is the Lord who gives us this joy. It is the Lord that provokes us to prayer. It is the Lord that gives us this peace, and he does so from within our very chest. Thanks be to God, the Lord is at hand. I just want to encourage you today to look to God, to trust in God. Uh, I read a little blog post uh, a few days ago that I thought was really, really helpful. Uh, I don't know this young lady. Her name is Abigail Remert. I uh, have no idea about anything that, that uh, she has done prior, but I, I saw this and I thought it was great. She's entitled it, Let's Have Some Good News. This is her story, quickly. I need some good news, tidings of comfort and joy, peace on earth and goodwill to men, joy to the world. Soon we'll enjoy the season just around the corner where we'll spend time and parties singing and soaking in these themes of the coming of Emmanuel, God with us. I've never been so tempted to pull out the tree and fill the corners of our house with extra light. I may be secretly singing carols when I drive places alone. But first, I feel I haven't conjured up enough gratitude out of this autumn. Do you ever grasp at the passing season, hoping to squeeze out the last of the nostalgia before it moves on? In September, I eagerly gathered fall foliage, put together an autumn playlist, and made plans to write things I'm thankful for on three by five cards every day. It's been a beautiful season with many more reasons to rejoice than to despair. Determined to feel thankful vibes, I've made pumpkin chocolate chip bread, pulled out my book about pilgrims, and made new traditions. Sweet nods to the season, but what I most needed was the power that real heart-rooted thanksgiving to God brings. This week, I sat in the waiting room for an appointment. Over an hour crept by as people more sick than me shuffled in and out, but I felt the full soak of the inconvenience of waiting, or dreading, the extra time before my name was finally called. My wait turned out purposeful. Ashamed of my impatience, I remembered and prayed for my brave brother and sister-in-law who have been uh, practically living at their hospital with their baby, watching him experience layers of suffering. They, they're sustained by the Lord. 
Back at home, I wish to complain in my raspy, sick voice that, that sounds like pathetic whining practically no matter what I say about the discomforts of pregnancy. Then I remembered how many would love to feel a little baby pressed up against their ribs. Precious, precious gifts. But comparison and optimism aren't alone what bring year-long worship that will spill into Advent. No amount of white pumpkins or orange-hued branches will replace the worship prompted by gazing at Christ. An old, old friend, Philippians chapter 4, gave me hope today. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks to the grace of the Spirit for spurring me to place my supplication bathed in thanks in God's hands, all with the promise of a powerful, unexplainable peace in Christ. This is the good news. I hope this peace can settle in our hearts even if our Thanksgiving gathering isn't everything it always used to be. If it's robbed of health or laced with heartbreak, our minds and our hearts are safe, guarded with peace on earth, sent from God. Do not be anxious and neglect the great peace available to us. Here with us is our Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace. Yes, even as far as the curse is found. He receives all the supplications and praise our holiday tables can give him and our ordinary tables. Our hearts will respond in thanks when we simply gaze on him in truth and holiness. Please remind me of this good news in the days to come. We all have a tendency to forget it, don't we? And we need God to remind us. And the good news is the Lord is at hand. He's at hand. He's in me and in you, if you're a follower of Christ, to remind us. There's the last thing he says quickly. Notice down in verse 18. Not only stand firm in the Lord or rejoice in the Lord, but here he says, sacrifice for others in the Lord. My, I wish I could say so much more about this particular paragraph. Time won't permit it. But sacrifice for others. You'll note that in this particular paragraph, he is affirming the Philippians and their support for him financially. Verse, 17, verse 15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, Greece, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you, only you. Even when I moved on to Thessalonica, we might say, well, he's now, he's their problem. He's with them. It's their responsibility. But the Philippians took up an offering and sent it to Thessalonica for the apostle. He's now in prison. We don't know specifically where, but most assumptions are Rome. Rome is not in Greece. So they had to take up an offering, and they had to send it. Epaphroditus is mentioned here uh, in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts, plural, that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, he is commending their sacrifice. He is celebrating their sacrifice. And he is telling them, do it again. Do it some more. Sacrifice for others. Verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. 
sacrifice for others, others in the Lord. This is the nature of our lives. God has given us so that we might help others, so that we might demonstrate that, in fact, we know God. A stingy person does not reflect the character of God. Contemplate that. Who are you that you would withhold from others what God has given to you? You are merely the manager. You're merely the caretaker of the resources of God that he's given to you, that he intends for you to give to others. God intends to serve people through people. God could drop money from clouds, I suppose, but I've never had that experience, and neither have you, and I've never known anyone who had that experience. I've known little five-year-old boys who wondered if that was possible, but the rest of us have figured it out. That doesn't happen. Instead, what God intends to do is that he intends for us to sacrifice for others, specifically in the Philippians' case, financially. <clears throat> it's not like they, they, they just went and took him to lunch. They actually received an offering and, and purchased things and provided resources. They resourced him while he was in ministry. They resourced him now while he's in prison. They have blessed him, and he's commending them for that and tells them, keep it going. My God will supply you in the keeping it going. God will do this. You can't outgive God. You can't outpace God. You, you will always have the resources that God intends for you to have so that you might be resourced yourself and that God might intend others to be resourced through you. It's not just appropriate this time of year. It's appropriate all year. Interesting, verse 13, we, we can't just ignore it. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. People will quote that verse and say, you know, God will help me to, to do X or Y or Z, and I'm not arguing against that. But I will tell you, that is not the context from which Paul writes. Paul is not saying God will help me get out of prison. God is not, Paul is not saying God will help me get a wife or God will help me endure until I get a wife. These are all applications that people have made in my life. I can do all things through Christ. I can even be, you know, this until I'm not, so forth and so on. That's, that's not the context. The context is the Apostle Paul has experienced seasons of want and seasons of plenty. He's had and he's had not. And he said, I have learned to be content in the Lord. I've learned that if God has led me into a season of want, I'm good with that. And the reason I've learned that is because I've been in those seasons. I've walked those roads. I've had those difficulties. I've walked that experience. I've lived there. And I've learned that God is enough. And I've had seasons of plenty. And I've learned that in that season, God is enough. I can do all things through Christ. I can live with a little and I can live with a lot. But I cannot live without Christ. Hear me. 
That which he is celebrating is not the provision of God for material things, though that is the context. But what he is celebrating is the provision of God of his son in the midst of whatever circumstance Paul finds himself in. I can do all things through him. Him. It is Christ that I can't live without. I can live without food. I've done it. I can live with food. I've done it. But I can't live without Christ. So therefore, sacrifice for others. Keep sacrificing for others. Keep serving others because you want them to have Christ. You want them to know Christ. You want them to hear Christ, to see Christ in you. I don't know why people are impressed with generosity, but they are, aren't they? I have a theory, only a theory. Why are people so impressed with others' generosity? Because they know that in and of themselves, they are not. May I tell you, dear friend, we are to rejoice in the Lord always. And as the Lord gives, the Lord intends for us to distribute The Lord intends for us to be generous. The Lord intends for us to be kind and giving and sharing. The Lord intends for us to do all these things with people who we know and people we don't. Through people we know and through people we don't. God intends for us to do this because the world is not going to do that. The world is not going to live a life of sacrifice. But as Christian people, we are so that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may go home to heaven, that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. I urge you today to look to Christ. In Christ, we can stand firm, we can rejoice, and we can sacrifice for others. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you've led and are leading our lives. We thank you for your spirit who lives within us to teach us, to convict us, and to convince us of the ways of God. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us alone, but you've given us a helper, a helper, a comforter. Help us to be reasonable. Help us to rejoice. Help us to Think on the things that are right and good and true and not live a life of compromise. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, forgetting what lies behind and focusing upon him, sharing in his life, sharing in his sufferings, sharing in that which you have for us to do. Give us grace. Give us grace, we pray. Thank you today, Lord, for your kindness. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.